The other day, my younger daughter, Adeline, asked me what year, uh, what, what number this new year was going to be. And I told her it's 2024. And of course, the inevitable follow-up question was, why? why? Why is it that number? And I said, well, the reason it's that number is that our calendar, the calendar we use to mark our days and months and years, is based on the birth of Jesus. We began counting the years from Jesus' birth. So the, the number means there have been 2,024 years since the birth of Jesus, 2,024 years into the reign of Jesus Christ. She paused, and then she said, I like that we count the years by Jesus. Well, yeah, yeah, I do too. I like that. Because what that means is that we count our years, we count our days, we count our usual routine by the reign of Jesus. Jesus is the central figure in all of creation, in all of existence. And we come face to face with him, even in our calendar. We especially come face to face with him in God's word. But do we recognize him? Do we recognize him for who he truly is? and respond properly. In the portion of scripture we're going to take a look at today, we are given an event of a person who comes face to face with Jesus. He asks a question, he gets an answer he doesn't like, and he walks away sorrowful because he never recognizes who Jesus is. We are, of course, in the Gospel of Luke. This event is recorded in Luke chapter 18 and it's verses 18 through 30. Now, this is a real event that Luke has written down. This is sometimes mistakenly called a parable, but it's not. It's, it's a real event. It's a real occurrence. And I think it's important to recognize that, it, that this is a real event. It's not hypothetical. It's an actual occurrence with actual people. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 18. And we will read verses 18 through 25. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 25. This is on page 605 of the ESV Pew Bibles. And uh, it should be on the screens. So would you please stand in respect, to the reading of, in respect for the reading of God's word? Luke 18, verses 18 through 25. And a ruler asked him, good teacher... What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Would you pray with me? 
Lord God, you are rich in mercy and grace. We give you praise and thanks for the revealing through your word, the revealing of who you are, and the revealing of who we are. For that to happen, Lord, would you condescend to us? Would you stoop down and meet us in our deficiency of comprehension? Would you give us a spirit of insight and understanding through the Holy Spirit? We ask for your help. Please bless us as such. And may you be glorified for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I would say the lesson here is pretty simple, pretty straightforward from what we just read. If you're a rich person, you don't get into heaven. That's, that's kind of the end. So I don't know if the worship team wants to come back up here and we'll call it a day. No? No, I can keep talking. That's not necessarily that far off in a, in a sum, uh, summation. Many of you are probably sitting here right now breathing a sigh of relief thinking, well, thank goodness I'm not rich. But don't sell yourself short. Wealth is relativistic compared to most of the world. Everyone in this room would be considered fabulously wealthy. So then there's a problem. Where's the cutoff? Where's that, where's that line? We have to figure this out. We have to know. Is it, is it Elon Musk rich? Is it Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates? Is it you and I rich? Is it Nathan rich that doesn't get into heaven? To be able to answer this, we need to understand the context of this portion of Scripture. Many times, it's tempting to only take a discrete portion of Scripture as a standalone and attempt to draw out a lesson from it, when, in fact, it really is tied to the portions of Scripture around it. And so it is with our Scripture today. It is very much connected to the previous verses that Eric astutely uh, preached on last week, and it will be connected to the portion of Scripture after it to create this larger picture. Whether these incidences that, uh, uh, that, that Luke records, whether they are, uh, occurred chronologically or in a similar geographic location is, is unknown. However, Luke has placed them together for theological purposes. As a brief review, we see Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. He's preaching and teaching to the crowds that follow him. Ultimately, this will culminate in his crucifixion. As Eric pointed out, at one point, Jesus gives a lesson to his disciples that if one wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must receive it as a child, as a child receives. The child has no reserve of merit, no works to earn merit. They only receive now, as I said before, Luke connects occasions theologically. Verses 15 through 34 are a larger picture of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to enter the kingdom of God, what it means to inherit eternal life. The reason we mention the children again is that today we're going to meet the opposite of a kingdom-receiving child. 
Now, who is this? Luke records in verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At the beginning of this scene, we have a person that approaches Jesus with a question. What we can learn about this person, the only thing Luke initially says about this person is that he's a ruler. He's in some position of leadership. Outside of Roman rule and the royal court of Herod, which was just a client king of Rome, all positions of leadership, for the most part in the land, were tied to religion. The Sanhedrin were the religious ruling council. This leader that approached Jesus uh, probably was not a Sanhedrin. He could have been, but most likely he was a, a ruler in a local synagogue. One of the great things about the Synoptic Gospels is that you can build a more detailed picture by the data each gospel writer chooses to include. All three synoptic gospels record this event. So in Matthew, we learn that he is young. He's a young man. What that, what that can tell us is that he, he is most likely very visibly pious and righteous because He's recognized by the community of, of keeping the law. And we can know this because the leader of a synagogue, that, that position was usually reserved for an older man, someone that was wiser and more mature in keeping the law and worship. But this young man was a leader, so he was probably exceptional in righteousness compared to his peers. In the Gospel of Mark, we read that he came running up to Jesus and knelt down. A, a leader or an upper-class person wouldn't do this. this. That's a type of humiliation. We can then deduce that something was truly bothering this man. He had a restless heart. He was seeking help. All three Gospels also state that the man was rich. He was exceedingly rich. He had many, many possessions. If he was young, that means his wealth was probably inherited. In these ancient times, there was no stock market to create millionaires overnight. Considerable wealth was built up slowly over time and handed down generation to generation. Because of that, if you inherited the family fortune, you were expected to protect it and expand it so that it could be passed down to the next generation. You were, as this man probably was, the steward of a family estate. You put all these together and you get the title of the rich young ruler. And that is often how this passage is labeled. How would and how did the world view this man? Well, he seemed to have impeccable credentials. He appeared to be the kind of person you would want on your team. If Jesus thought more along the lines of uh, a corporate executive, uh, a, a Jack Welsh maybe, he would say, he would look at this man and he would probably say, I need this guy. I need this guy as one of my disciples. Maybe I should replace James or John. They're kind of loose cannons. Or maybe I should replace Peter. He sometimes speaks without thinking. Yeah, I think this guy would be a big improvement to my team. That's how the world would look at this man. 
What did Jesus ask? Or what, excuse me, what did he ask Jesus? What was, what was this man looking for? He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He addresses Jesus as good teacher. The adjective word good was never used to describe rabbis. Why did the rich young ruler use the word to describe Jesus? Was it flattery? Maybe. Maybe he was trying to flatter Jesus so he could answer his question. Or was it recognition that Jesus had godly insight? He had information from God? The rich young ruler was hoping to learn some of it? The information he wants to know is how he can attain eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The word for eternal in Greek is ionios. This word did not just mean everlasting. It meant a quality of godliness. The man was desiring life that just didn't go on forever. He wanted the quality of life that God had. The peace, the confidence, the satisfaction that God has, that has no end. What this tells us is that the rich young ruler, with all he had going for him, was still unsure. Certain of, un, he was uncertain about his destiny, had, had anxiety about his standing before God. He wasn't satisfied. But he did have some humility. He, he, came, he, he comes to Jesus, the person that might have some godly knowledge, a, a new commandment, maybe some secret information or a correct ceremony, something he just needed to add. And he asked this question, how do I inherit eternal life? In modern Christianity, we would call this man the perfect seeker. And some churches tailor their entire church to this, around this type of person. But immediately, Jesus points out a problem. Jesus answers the rich young ruler in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus answers the man's question with a question. Jesus asks, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Oh, is this a rhetorical question or a literal question maybe? Is he criticizing the rich young ruler? Is he giving him a chance to clarify? We, we don't know. The man never answers this. But what Jesus is saying is he's asking the rich young ruler, do you understand? Do you know what you're saying? Do you understand the implications of calling me good? You are saying that I am God. You're saying it. And if I'm God, are you prepared to obey whatever I command? Now, some critics of the Bible use this verse as an argument to say that Jesus is denying his deity. This seems to be a weak argument since Jesus is obviously critiquing the man's statement. And Jesus has referred to himself as good before. In John 10, 14 through 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. After Jesus asked his question to the rich young ruler, I wonder if there was an awkward moment of silence as Jesus perhaps waited for the man to answer. Was the man dumbfounded? 
Or did Jesus just launch into his second part of his answer, not letting him dig a deeper hole? Either way, Jesus goes on to answer the rich young ruler in more detail. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Really? The law? Where's the gospel here? Where is repentance? Where is the mention of faith? This this doesn't sound like evangelism. Jesus would fail the evangelism class here. Jesus lists five of the last six of the Ten Commandments, which this righteous Jew would have been very familiar with. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and honor your father and mother. So why did Jesus say this? Giving the law is not giving the gospel. The interesting thing here is, why did he give them these commandments? Why did he start in the middle of the Ten Commandments? These are all the commandments that deal with interpersonal relationships. It's it's person to person. It's how you treat your neighbor. It's, it's the horizontal portion of the commandments. Another thing that's a, a, a curious person would ask is, why are they out of order? Why does he list the commandments of honoring, commandment of honoring your father and mother last? And that's consistent in the Synoptic Gospels. If the rich young ruler's wealth was family money, then he would be honoring his father and mother, by being a good steward of that fortune. So the rich young ruler answers Jesus this time. He says, all these I have kept from my youth. I've kept all these commandments. The man claims probably passionately that he kept these since he was a child. Now, you could probably imagine Jesus's face. You know, maybe in the a raised eyebrow, maybe he lets out a sigh, and you could imagine him saying, you know, perhaps you missed the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps you missed my preaching, my teaching on the law, you know, the part where even if you keep the law outwardly, no one keeps it perfectly inwardly, lusting after someone in your mind is tantamount to outward adultery, hating somebody in your heart is the same as murder in God's eyes. Did you catch any of that? That's what he could have said to the rich young ruler. But Jesus didn't say that. Instead, he goes along with the rich young ruler's assessment of his own righteousness. The rich young ruler did appear to have a considerable measure of righteousness, especially from a human perspective. To be in the position he was when he compared himself to others, he was most likely ahead of the curve. And Jesus let him have that. Jesus said, okay, I'll give you those, but. In verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus gives this man a unique command, which is what the man was hoping for in the first place, maybe just not this one. He was commanded by Jesus to liquidate his assets, everything he had, give it all away, and follow him, follow Jesus. To be fully devoted to him, 
literally, to become a disciple. Why would Jesus require this of the man? He didn't say, believe on the Son of Man. There was just another law. The rich young ruler approached Jesus with the law, and that's what Jesus gave him. Gave him another law. Now, it's pretty obvious that Jesus knew this man's heart. This, actually, this wasn't really a new law. This wasn't a new commandment. You see, Jesus went right to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This man had placed wealth on the throne of his life. His possessions were an idol. They were his God. He did all right on the horizontal commandments, dealing with other uh, people, dealing with his fellow man, but he failed miserably on the vertical commandment in his relationship to God. And of, of course, really, if you don't have the vertical correct, you, you're not really going to have the horizontal correct either. The man was self-deluded. He was self-deceived. And we see the reaction that creates in the man when he hears the words of Jesus. He became very sad and because he was extremely rich. The man was left speechless. He couldn't articulate a response. But it was written on his face. He was visibly sad. Actually, sad, uh, the language here, sad does not really do it justice. He was sorrowful. He was grieving almost to the point of death. And all he could do was walk away. That's recorded in the other Gospels, that he walked away. He came with such hope and left in hopelessness. Why was he so grieved? Well, what was Jesus asking him to give up? His wealth? That's survival, security, comfort, power. If he was the steward of the family fortune, selling it and giving it all away would probably put him on the outs with his family. He'd create an enemy out of his family. Jesus was asking him to give up his family. If he was going to follow Jesus, literally follow Jesus, he would give up, he would be giving up his role as a ruler, his position of leadership, his clout in the community, and probably making a fair number of enemies among his peers. Jesus asked this man for everything. Again, this isn't anything new. Jesus preached the cost of discipleship earlier in the book of Luke. Jesus says, if you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that, that can be hard to swallow. But it's merely putting things in proper order, in the proper priority. Even good things do not have a higher priority, a higher position than God in our lives. God is the ultimate good. When my daughters ask me who I love the most, attempting to bait me into choosing my favorite child, I tell them I love God the most. Their response is always one of shock. You, even more than me? Yeah, even more than you. Even more than mom, even more than grandpa and grandma. Because that's proper. The rich young ruler walks away sorrowful. Jesus gives a commentary then to his disciples. Verses 24 and 25, seeing that he had become sad, 
said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So now Jesus makes this outlandish statement about the rich not getting into heaven, camels, needles. What, what does that all mean? Jesus is making a specific statement to his disciples. It is difficult for a wealthy person to enter into the kingdom of God. In fact, it's so difficult that it's impossible. To illustrate it, Jesus quotes a rabbinic idiom, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The camel was the largest known animal in Palestine at the time. The eye of a needle was the smallest passageway. It represented an impossible feat. There's a myth uh, you may have, may have seen it, heard it, read about it, that uh, what Jesus was referring to, he wasn't referring to an actual needle, he was referring to uh, a, a, a city wall gate that was of diminutive size, that was called the, the eye of the needle gate. That's an 11th century myth. That's not true. There is no such a gate in, in all of the records, in all of... Uh, um, archaeological evidence that such a named gate existed. As a matter of fact, in Mesopotamia, in, Bab the, in Mesopotamia, the Babylon Talmud uses the phrase, is it, is it, it is easier for an elephant to pass through the eye of a needle. An elephant was the largest known animal in Mesopotamia. The sole purpose of this phrase was to signify something, that something was impossible. Jesus wasn't mincing words as indicated by the response of the disciples when they say, then who can be saved? The original language indicates that the disciples' response was one of shock and surprise. His disciples were shocked that Jesus would say it's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. The rich young ruler to them seemed to be the perfect example of someone that is saved. He was extremely righteous. He was visibly blessed. This all seemed to prove that he was right with God. <clears throat> you see, the disciples were still partially operating under the under this system that had been created in the cultural worldview of Judaism at the time. A system derived from the Mosaic Covenant that stated if the people obeyed the law of God, then God would bless them and they would prosper. However, there's nothing in the Old Testament that links obeying the law with gaining eternal life. This was an idea that developed over time and was the prevailing thought during the time of Jesus. To the disciples, the rich young ruler was the ideal in this line of belief. He must be righteous because he's so blessed by God. And if he's so righteous, then he's a shoe-in for eternal life. That's what the disciples were thinking. That was their logic. So they would be shocked to hear that if this man who is so obviously blessed by God couldn't get into heaven, what hope did they have of getting in? Jesus' answer to them was this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What was Jesus speaking of? He, he is speaking of the impossibleness of the law. The law cannot save. Man cannot keep the law. The rich young ruler was trying to save himself. In verse 18, it was, what must I do? What good thing must I do? 
in the other gospel. He was not approaching the situation as a child ready to receive. He was approaching, approaching it as someone completely self-assured that he was capable of doing whatever needed to be done, all on his own. The possibleness of God is that God can save where man cannot. God can change hearts and remove the idols in our lives. Jesus fulfills the law where we fail. Peter then asked the question of Jesus in verse 28. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. So Peter was probably feeling a bit insecure at the moment. He's searching for reassurance. They had their worldview of righteousness equals blessing equals eternal life smashed to pieces. They needed that worldview replaced. The question in their mind would have been, we gave up much. Did that fulfill the law? Do I, do I need to give up more? Look at Jesus' answer in verses 29 and 30. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come, eternal life. Jesus gives them their reassurance. This was, what was their investment here? What was their investment in the kingdom of God? They invested by leaving their family, leaving their home, leaving their careers. This is similar to what was being asked of the rich young, rich young ruler. What was the promised return on the investment? They would receive more. They would receive more family. They would receive a permanent home and fabulous treasures. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, what was given up would be replaced. The family given up would be replaced by the family of the church. The home given up would be replaced by a permanent home in heaven. And the wealth given up would be replaced by spiritual treasures. This would happen in the present age. It would happen now and in the age to come, eternal life, just what the rich young ruler was looking for. Now, I think to be able to understand this interaction between the rich young ruler and Jesus better, to be able to understand it better, we can look at the plight of someone similar. First off, the rich young ruler did not come to the right, the rich young ruler did come to the right person, and he did ask what seemed to be the right question. He wanted a guarantee of getting the type of life equal to God's life. He already lived a blessed life, he just wanted to add to it. So then we must ask, what was he really seeking? Was he seeking God, or was he seeking the benefits of God? Unfortunately, many Christians today, and even more individuals that would be defined as seekers, are not seeking God. In reality, they're seeking the benefits of God. The, the great Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas said, we confuse two similar yet different human actions. We see people searching desperately for peace of mind, relief from guilt, meaning and purpose in their lives and loving acceptance. We know that ultimately these things can only be found in God. Therefore, we conclude that since people are seeking these things, they must be seeking God. People do not seek God. They seek after the benefits that only God can give them. The sin of fallen man is this, 
Man seeks the benefits of God while at the same time fleeing from God himself. We are by nature fugitives. The rich young ruler was face to face with God, but didn't recognize him. He didn't call Jesus Lord, he called him teacher. He didn't want Jesus, he wanted the knowledge that Jesus had. He didn't want God. C.S. Lewis wrote this very situation into his book, The Great Divorce, uh, since we've been studying through a C.S. Lewis book in our uh, Sunday morning Bible study class. My apologies to the attenders for which this might be repeat. But in The Great Divorce, Lewis writes of a soul of a mother that has traveled from hell and is at the gates of heaven and is arguing with a spirit of heaven. She wants to enter so she can see her son who had previously died. Her argument is that her son belongs to her. No one can take better care of her son than she. The spirit is forced to rebuff her and inform her that that's not the reason you come to heaven. That's not the reason you would enter heaven. One enters heaven to see the Lord of heaven. The first and foremost desire must be for God. This woman's idol was motherhood. It was her God, just like money was for the rich young ruler. We make the mistake of seeking benefits, the benefits of God in the law, through the law. We try to manipulate the law and then are filled with anxiety when we can't keep it. So then we, we try to mold the law, remold it to make ourselves good. Romans 10.3 says, <coughs> for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The rich young ruler was blind and ignorant of the idol on the throne of his life. He approached the law as a means to attain the benefits of God, eternal life. What is the purpose of the law? The law is designed to break you, to destroy, to kill our spiritual pride. In the Garden of Eden, mankind sinned in a prideful desire to be like God, knowing good from evil. God gave the law to show us what it meant to know good and evil. God essentially said, you want to be like me? Here's my standards. Here's my moral code. My moral character. How do you stack up? And we see this play out with a young Pharisee, Paul, also had a fantastic resume when it came to the law. Better than the rich young rulers, in fact. It's listed in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Within this current system, Paul was perfect. No one could top him. Except after the revelation of Christ to Paul, when Jesus became completely real to him, his understanding of the law and its true nature became clear. 
He says this in Romans 7, 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Once Paul understood how he really stacked up to the law, he realized that the law killed him. He was broken by it. And then he continues in Philippians 3, 7 through, uh, 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For the sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Everything Paul thought was a benefit to him became the opposite. Everything he held valuable became garbage. Everything that was an idol was replaced by Jesus. If the rich young ruler had realized this, giving away his money wouldn't have been an impossible hurdle. In a surprisingly similar commentary, Jesus calls out the church of Laodicea. He gives them a warning in Revelation 3, 17 through 19. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This entire church was becoming comfortable in their blessings. They were falling back into that old system of equating blessings with being right with God. They were replacing Jesus with the idol of their own self-righteousness. If Jesus is willing to call out, the rich young ruler's idolatry, he's going to call out and discipline those that he loves, even an entire church. What is it that we can take away from this? Are we, are we supposed to give away all our wealth? That seems to be a special commandment that only the rich young ruler got. Besides, the Bible's full of wealthy people that are righteous. Abraham, Job, <clears throat> David, <clears throat> Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter still owned his, own, his house. The difference is they counted what they had as less important than the Lord. They recognized God's ownership of what they had and offered it up for his use. This isn't even really about money. Poor people are just as dead in their sin as a rich person. If you hear a sermon preached on this passage and the thesis of it is be less greedy, you just heard a sermon on law. If I was greedy before the sermon, how is hearing about a law to be less greedy going to help? The law can't save. All it can do is define the sin of greed for me. That's what Paul was saying. This is about what God you serve. The rich young rulers serve the God of money and family and status by extension. The Bible says we are to examine ourselves. What God do we serve? Money? Status? Sex, addiction, even good things, family, motherhood, fatherhood, work. 
In actuality, you can insert anything, anything that isn't God, anything that isn't Jesus can be your idol. God must be the only God in our lives. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What would be the proper response to what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? First of all, would it be approaching Jesus like a child, not bringing any credentials, any works, none of our own righteousness? But what that also means is that a child does not necessarily have the understanding of the need for salvation. However, they have the willingness to grab hold of something better if they recognize it as better. The rich young ruler brought his credentials, his works, his righteousness, but he also lacked understanding. There was no recognition of the need of salvation. He just wanted assurance. He wanted the benefits. But he was face to face with the origin of those benefits and didn't recognize it. He had a weak understanding of good. He believed man could be good. He called Jesus good. But he also called him just a man by calling him teacher. He thought he could be good, that he could do it on his own. He had a low view of good, an inflated view of righteousness, his, his righteousness, and an incorrect view of the law. He was not broken by the law. If you leave here today like the rich young ruler left, thinking that you're basically good, my good outweighs my bad. I, I can do this on my own. I can get better. If that's your belief, you will never, ever see the need for Jesus. You may say, well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I, I, you may even say, I love Jesus. But do you need him? Unless you are broken upon the wheel of the law, you will never see yourself as who you really are. You will never see Jesus for who he really is. What should have been the rich young ruler's response to this impossible request, impossible because he was just a sinful man? It should have been, I can't. I can't. Lord, save me. If that would have been his response, what would Jesus have done? God says it in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. What is impossible for you to do, God will do for you. When you cry out to him, save me. God will do it because all things are possible with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord, we, we praise you. We thank you and we praise you for the law and for the reason it was given. I pray that we are broken upon it, that we are spiritually shipwrecked upon its rocks. And by that we may 
recognize the lordship of Jesus and the salvation he holds. May we in our broken spirits cry out to him, save us. May we not walk away sorrowful like the rich young ruler, but, but walk away with joy and praise because you have done what is impossible for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.